Okay, so part two, uh, effectiveness of prayer. Um, what is prayer? So the first one we did uh, was the reason we pray. And these next two at least, uh, this one and the next one, are kind of um, expanding on what we did in the first one. So we're going to take some things from the first one and expand on them. Uh, and then the last one uh, will be um, actually about an example, an application in the Bible um, from the Psalms. And we'll look at that and see how David applied prayer in his life. And then we'll look at an actual practical example. But this one is about effectiveness. And we said last week we should have a relationship with the living God first before we make our requests. Those requests are secondary to the primary purpose, and that is to know Jesus is our Lord and Saviour first and foremost and deserves the highest praise of all. And at the very least, the foundation of our prayer life to a holy God should be one uh, built on trust, should be built on openness and built on honesty. So understanding that we should have a firm foundation of trust before anything else, this week we look at how effective prayer is based on that healthy relationship with God. And today we should come away with an understanding of how effectiveness of prayer is directly linked to our faith in Jesus. Christ's example, as we'll see, is the Son submitting to the Father, even though he asks otherwise but ultimately, Jesus will not, will not veer away from the Father's will in what the Father wants to achieve. And we'll learn that prayer can, from our point of view at least, can change an outcome and be effective. Uh, and pro hopefully answer the question that uh, probably many people have is either why should we pray at all? Uh, or is prayer effective? Um, is it worth praying? Does it do anything? And I hope today actually I can show you that every single time you pray, it does something every single time, not just the occasional time. It's our perception of prayer that gets in the way of whether we think God has done something or not. It's God always responds, always hears uh, the prayer of his followers, of his believers, and those who will obviously come to him and submit as well. Uh, and we hope and pray for that for many more to come. And so uh, we will we'll see that the provision of grace and the payment for sin has to always be in balance with the will of God and so see prayer be effective in ways we never expected. So let's look at our first part. This is a disqualifier. What we need to establish at this point uh, is uh, we're not the ones making the prayer effective. And so we need to establish, it might be basics, might be 101 to you, but we need to establish uh, that we are disqualified uh, from prayer unless God has made it so, unless God has allowed that to happen. So what we need to start with is an understanding that on our own, we have no right to ask God for anything. We have no right to expect uh, for anything we ask to take effect at all in our lives or the world around us. Mark 10 verse 18 says, uh, why do you call me good? And Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus tells us that no one is good except God alone. And Jesus was able to say this because he knew what was to come. He knew that in order for mankind to be redeemed in the sight of a holy God, he would have to be sacrificed so all sins, all our sins, would be paid for. Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. It is only because of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection that we have a way to be in the presence of a holy God. 
It's therefore an absolute requirement then that if we are to make use of this one true way to God, that we need to have faith in the one who made it possible. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 5, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. We find that all our petitions, all our prayers, all our intercessions, all our thanksgiving are only effective in as much as we trust the one who mediates those requests on our behalf. So if you don't believe in Jesus, here's a basic thing. If you don't believe in Jesus, and apart from God's grace, this he might hear, if you don't believe in Jesus, prayers cannot be effective. And the reason for that is you need to believe in the one who mediates the prayer. So you're, I don't want to call him a middleman because Jesus is clearly not a middleman. He is God himself. But we are praying and Jesus takes those prayers and he mediates with the Father about their effectiveness, about putting them into action. But if you don't believe in Jesus, I think this is quite logical, prayers I don't think are answered. Now there is times, of course, when prayers are answered from unbelievers. It's not common. It's not all the time. And even if sometimes God answers them, maybe it's probably not for their benefit because if they don't believe in Jesus, they're probably asking for something that God doesn't want them to ask for. So it can get quite complex here, but actually the basic principle to begin with, if you don't believe in the mediator, prayers cannot be effective. God will not, God the Father will not hear those prayers. Clearly in our verses right here. John 14 verse 6 uh, says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just want to nail that down. has to be Jesus. You can't just believe in a God. You can't just believe in the God. You have to believe in Jesus who is God. Because we have to go through him with all our prayers and all our requests. So what we know is that prayers are put into action by the Father, but mediated by Jesus on our behalf. So that means the only way we can see prayers be effective in the first instance is that we believe that Jesus is Lord, trust in him for our salvation. Then and only then will the Father hear any prayers. And even then they have to come through Jesus. This should be basics, but I need to reiterate, because if anyone hears the message, they need to know that first and foremost, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to accept him as saviour. Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now the disqualified are qualified. Now the disqualified are now qualified to be in the presence of a holy God because of Jesus, only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and for those that believe that he is Lord. So we've established the groundwork. We've established that you must trust in Jesus Christ to be saved and therefore for your prayers to be heard. So, what we're going to look at now is how prayers are effective in every single way, even if you might think they're not. And I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to look at this tension between when we pray to God, but God's grace has to still reign. God's grace still has to be at the forefront. Then we'll look at God's will in comparison to how we pray and what we ask for. So, 
I want to show you in this part how God can change what he does, at least from our perception. Uh, If we ask God to do so, he will do it. If he thinks, if it's in his will, if it's within his grace, he will change what he's going to do. And I'll pad this out because you need to be, we need to be careful about what, when we say, if you ask God, he'll change his mind. We have a perception problem with God in that we don't quite understand how God works. We know that he knows before we know. He knows that he knows everything about what we already know and he knows more than us. So he can sort of change his mind, but not change his mind because he probably wasn't going to do that anyway because he knew you was going to pray. There's a whole load of stuff. So let, let's get into that. It's a really important aspect of how God makes prayer effective. But at the same time, while these prayers are sometimes answered directly, almost exactly in what we ask for, uh, most times prayers are put into effect in ways we did not anticipate the outcome to. So let's look at a couple of examples to kind of get our our heads around this. Moses, during the Exodus, the people decided that Moses took too long up in the mountain with God. It, it took way too long. They were, they were sitting there. They said, look, this guy, this in, in the NIV, is called this fellow. It's very, it's very English, isn't it? This fellow. It's taking far too long up this mountain with God. And they probably think God's probably taken Moses and, and they've been abandoned. So in response, uh, Aaron makes a golden calf out of all their gold that the people had. And they make it their God and their idol. And they worship it. And now this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 32, 7 to 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out, up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So then Moses, in turn, prays to God. He speaks to God uh, and he says, please, Lord, relent. 32 verses 11 to 14. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord. He's uh, Lord, he's God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever then the lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened so right there god has said he was going to do something and then he said he he's not going to do it anymore okay done it a lot in amos by the way god really has a proper righteous rant about the people who are disobeying him and he, he talks about all sorts of things that he will do because they don't deserve his grace. They don't deserve to be his people. But here's the thing. Moses goes down to the camp and finds exactly what God told Moses was going on. And so what does Moses say? 
When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. That's familiar, isn't it? Anger burned. God's anger was burning. And he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain, and so on and so on. And it, it gets incredibly bad. Uh, all, most of the people, uh, sorry, 3,000 of the people get killed because of this desertion, as it were, to God. And so Moses says to the Levites, go and kill all these people, Going 3,000 of them, and they go and kill them. Likely there's quite a lot. I mean, much more than 3,000, obviously. Um, and we can go through this whole chapter and see that. But I'm going to encourage you to read it instead because it's really interesting in how God moves from one action to another. But suffice to say, in this we find that God is gracious towards the people by not carrying out his destruction of them through Moses' prayer to him. And he says, I, I won't kill them. I won't destroy them. And so what was obviously going to happen, he was going to wipe people out. Moses and his wife were going to be the last ones left. And then we're going to start again. Effectively, God was going to start with Moses and start all over again. But it ends with Moses' anger burning. Uh, and then we see the 3,000 people killed by the Levites. Others are blotted out of God's book. So they live, but they're blotted out. They don't get to be in God's book. And then later on, they're all punished because of the sin by a plague. And now you might ask, did, did Moses' prayer really have any effect whatsoever? God in his righteousness was about to destroy the entirety of his people and effectively start again with Moses. But God relented and did not destroy them. So the prayer was answered and was put into effect. But here's what we've got to understand. God was not being rash in his original decision to destroy them, nor did he need Moses to calm him down. or need Moses to be the reasonable one in the room. God wasn't making a mistake. God was perfectly righteous in the first decision he'd made to destroy his people for the sin they'd committed against him. What God was doing was offering grace in enacting Moses' request to him. What did not go away, however, was that sin had to be atoned for. So it doesn't matter how much Moses would have asked for, Moses would have pleaded, what cannot be removed from this situation is the sin that's been committed. Sin has been acted towards God, and it must have a recompense. In order that God keeps the world from falling into complete mess and into the full consequences of sin, because even if you see the mess around us today, God, Jesus Christ, actually is holding the world together in, in, in making sure it doesn't fall entirely to the consequences of sin. If Jesus does not do that, if Jesus, and that's when he returns, then the world falls to sin entirely. But there must be atonement for it. There must be atonement for sin. Moses' prayer was answered and put into effect, but what his prayer did not do was to override the character and will of God himself. It didn't change who God was because Moses had... Uh, I want to say convinced, but let's say convinced for now, at least. He convinced God that actually this will glorify you if you don't kill them. It will, it will glorify you if you don't destroy them. We see this same account in 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleads with God several times, asking him to spare the city. Eventually, even if there is only 10 righteous people in the city, he says. And God graciously acknowledges Abraham's request to not destroy the city if there are even 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. What some people have said about this, by the way, is that God's kind of playing games with, with him. He's, he's just playing games. Of course, he's going to destroy the city. But God is, is genuine in acknowledging the request. Uh, he, he's not playing games with him. If there is 10 righteous people in that city, he will not destroy it. So if God says he won't, he won't do it. He's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not a gimmick. He's not playing games with him. I mean, it's absurd some of the things that people think this is about when you know, God's saying, okay, I won't. It, it's like as if they're, they're treating the God of the Bible like these silly gods, like these low gods, like the ones who, who can't actually compete against the God uh, of the real God. But we see that Abraham pleads with God several times and asks him to spare this city, even if there's only 10. So does God find 10 righteous people? No. Genesis 19, verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. It's meant to be another verse. Now, I don't think I've got it. I haven't got it. I'll leave that on now. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Every, let me see one go back here. Dan, can you get that slide back? My button isn't working there, just go, yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. But the men inside reached out and pulled a lot back into the house and shut the door. So what, what's happened here is every part of the city, men young and old, it says, have come to demand lot bring out the men. And the men are the angels, by the way. So these are the angels that came uh, and, and he said, I want you to come and eat in my house. They said, no, no, we'll, we'll sleep in the square. It's absolutely fine. He said, no, I insist. And then they come into this house. They eat. And then the men from the town, from the city, they come and surround the house. Uh, what's important is if you read it, it's men of young and old, men of every age, in effect. And if you think and remember what Sodom was about, what its main sin was about, that, that's, that's men and children. That's men and boys coming to surround the house. And, and do you know what they ask? Bring these men out so we can have sex with them. Not kill them, so we can have sex with them. Now you're thinking about some people hate, hate that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The one thing they want, because the one thing that has just invaded their hearts and their minds totally, is this desire to just want to do this to other men. And they just want to do this. They, just, they can't stop. And so the thing is, there's, there's new men that have come into town. <laughs> they demand for them to come out. God is still gracious, by the way. And if there's 10 righteous people, he will, not, he will not destroy this city, this city that is lost to its lust, to its, to its own self. But if there's 10 righteous men out of potentially anything of the estimate, potentially between 600 and 1.5 million, 10, 10 men, 10 righteous men, 10 righteous people, God will not destroy. 
So they come and demand it. And then you think, with this request, is this really a city that has 10 righteous men in it? I wouldn't have thought so. The Bible clearly tells us that men young and old came to the house. It shows it had none. So submissive are they to their carnality that they will do such things to satisfy it. So God rightly will not honour that request. Because firstly, it doesn't meet the requirement that was asked of him, which is if you find 10 men, 10 people, save the city, do not destroy it. Didn't find any, didn't find 10. But secondly, because if he was to save it anyway, he would go against his own will to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin would not have been atoned for. You see, if God doesn't carry out what is righteous in carrying out that work, God is no longer God. It's a weird concept. If God is not consistent with who he is in himself, then we can't trust who he is in this text. But God is consistent all the time. He has to say that if sin is sin and sin has to be paid for, then sin has to be paid for all the time. There is no exception here. Sin has to be paid for that's been done in the presence of a holy God. This would go against who God is. What we find, in fact, is that there are actually only six righteous people found in Sodom. Lot, his wife, his two daughters, and the two future husbands they'll marry. Even mathematically, it doesn't reach 10. I mean, you, this, is, this, is, this is good stuff. I think, I, I read this, I think, he, he literally kept to the agreement. God kept to his agreement and said, no, there's only six. There are only six righteous people here. I cannot save this city. It must be destroyed. God's will and character has to remain entirely intact, especially as we know that our God is a God that never changes. So prayer in this instance, yes, is still effective, but it is in the control of the one who empowers it, carries it out in the way that does not compromise his will and character. God heard the prayer. God acknowledged the prayer. But that prayer cannot compromise who he is. It cannot compromise the fundamental character of himself. Even if that prayer does entirely uh, speak to his will, he's still gracious in hearing that prayer, and so by hearing makes it effective. Even hearing it, prayer is effective. This is why last week I urged us all to understand that prayer is about bringing us peace above all human understanding. God hears our prayer, makes them effective, thereby bringing us peace and understanding. But we're to trust in the outcome that God deems right in the way he responds to that prayer. And that's what we learned last week. To align ourselves with God's will is to trust in the process and the way he carries out his will. So let's have a look at a prayer, our prayers and God's will. In fact, this is probably a more difficult one. Because when we look at God's grace, it's amazing that he hears us. It's amazing that he responds even to our requests and our prayers. It's amazing. But those prayers will never outdo God's will. They cannot override his, his will. And so we're going to look at this. In regard to understanding this tension between our prayers and the will of God and how God still makes our prayers effective, we're going to look at Jesus' um, time in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Matthew 26, 38 to 40 says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watching me. That's the uh, disciples. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returns to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. We can learn from Jesus what it's like to want God's will and yet to not want it. This is a, this is a, a crucial moment in Jesus' relationship, Jesus' destiny, as it were, to go and be on the cross, to die for sin and to be resurrected. We can learn from Jesus, though, what it's like to feel we want God's will, but it will come with pain and it will come with cost. That in our desire to be obedient and to want to be righteous in the sight of God will require us to pay a price. Now, in no way do we pay the price that Jesus paid. But for our prayers to be effective, our own heart, our own flesh will more than likely not want what the Spirit prompts us to pray. So we need to be assured that even though our flesh might be fearful of what we need to pray for, we know that flesh is only for this life. So even if the flesh is put to death, we will live eternally with a holy God. Romans 5 verses 5 to 11. Romans 8 verses 5 to 11, sorry. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. You see the struggle. This is a, this is a constant struggle. Uh, we... When, when we pray for things, we, we, need to, we need to think about what we're praying for. We need to think about what that might bring to us. That This will have some consequences to us. When we pray for things, when we're even praying for this, this area, this community to be broken by God's Spirit, that, that's a great thing because we can be here for them. But there's a cost for us because when people are broken, their brokenness comes with them. And then they come to us and then we need to tell them about Jesus more and more and how Jesus can help them in their brokenness. But that's a cost to us because we, have to, we spend time with them, but it's also hard to hear. It's hard to hear the brokenness that people in that have been bound up for so many years and suddenly the Spirit of God has broken in and suddenly someone, one person at least, has come and said, this, this is my life. It's a mess. I've gone through all this and I've only realized how bad that is 
in the moment that I, I faced Jesus, that, I, that I, I was convicted by him, convicted by his Holy Spirit. And we see that even as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is fully God and fully man, even in his, even in his perfect human nature, he still struggled to accept the torture that was going to come to his flesh. His flesh was physically repelled by what was to come on the cross. It's not that Jesus is, is suddenly not perfect anymore because of this. Remember, fully human, fully God. So he experienced what it is for the flesh to cry out, knowing what was to come. He can, he can feel, and that's why we know that Jesus feels our pain. He feels the ultimate pain on the cross, but that means he can feel maybe my lesser pain, my, my lesser turmoil of emotions or a turmoil of a, of a moment or a, or a period of my life. Jesus knows what it's like to struggle against the flesh. Matthew 26, verse 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus was well aware of this battle between the flesh and its desire of self-preservation. Jesus knew that God's will was to crush him, to take the pain and piercing of his body so that sin could be paid for. Jesus knew that. Jesus, Jesus showed that it is right that even though there was no other way, it was still right to pray to the Father. It was still right to pray to God and ask him, if there was another way. This part of Jesus' prayer is still just as effective as the next part. You see, in praying the first part, Jesus conquered the flesh and kept it under submission to God. So he submits it to God because his flesh is crying out to him and it's saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to. And he says, Lord, this is, I'm going to submit this to you. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to tell you what it's saying to me. And he tells God, what it's trying to do. It's trying to live on. It's trying to hold on to life, grip on, so that Jesus will not go to the cross. Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it's possible, may the cup be, this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It was not for the Father to release him from what had to be done. Rather that the first part of the prayer served to bring Jesus through this battle between the flesh and that of the will of God. And he did this through earnest prayer, intense prayer, willful submission to God's plan. Jesus was committed to the will of the Father above everything else. And for us, Jesus shows that prayer is effective in ways we don't understand, always understand straight away. Sometimes the prayer is to change how God might act in a situation. He might take a different course of action. And that means he shows his amazing grace to fulfill, fulfill that which we pray for. Other times, the prayer is not actually for God to change his course of action at all. Rather, it's to help us understand the action that he will take, as we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. Prayer is meant to bring us peace. 
So even if they don't understand it, the prayer itself brings us peace. Then later we see this same thing with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is for us to learn that prayer, even though effective, is rightly contained within God's will. John 16 verse 23 to 24 says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. There's no easy answers to why our perception of prayer is not uh, answered, why we perceive sometimes that prayer is not answered. I can tell you, though, that I read the Bible and I say every single time prayer is answered. Because sometimes that, and I think most of the time, that prayer is to remind us of God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. It's to remind us that he knows what he's doing to remind us that he has the right plan, the right way forward, so that we may have peace and confidence that he's going to carry it out. So our prayers should be based on the authority of the very one who mediates for us. And in that we should find joy in confidence we have through Jesus to deliver on his promise. We should be assured that every prayer is answered. But are we open to the answer? Because I wonder if sometimes we keep looking for this amazing miracle, as it were, when we pray. And actually, sometimes it's just to tell us, God's got it in hand. It's okay. It's going to be carried through because you ask for it. Because you ask God for it in God's will, because you believe and trust in him. Believe that he's got the right answer to that prayer. so we should have joy in Jesus for this Hebrews 7 25 therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God for him because he always lives to intercede for them so we need to have faith and we need to have courage prayer is effective if you believe in the one who mediates on our behalf that he died for our sins and rose again so we too can have a new life in him 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If nothing else, if you have no other prayers to pray, this alone should embolden us to pray all the more. All the more to God for, to work in ways only he can work. Asking God to give us assurance that prayer is indeed effective and he will over and over again. And we'll see in this world that sometimes we think that God is not answering. Um, if you trust in Jesus, and this is why our focus as Christians is sharing the gospel. This is why our focus as Christians should be on sharing the word. Because ultimately it will come down to this. It doesn't matter what will happen to this flesh. It doesn't matter that it will perish because what really matters is what's happening afterwards. What will happen to people after they die? Will they go to hell or will they meet him in eternity in heaven? 
And that's where we need to be praying. Lord, break the hearts of this community that they may know they're on a fool's errand for not trusting and believing in you. And yet they can have a full life, eternal life with a holy God who welcomes and wants all people to come to a knowledge of him. So if anything, we need to pray for. Let's pray for our sins to be forgiven. And let's pray for those who don't know that their sins need to be forgiven so they may come to Jesus. Let's pray now and we'll worship together. Lord, uh, how is it that you've made this so easy? Uh, well, the answer is Jesus, of course. Lord, that if we come to you, pray to you, seek first our sins to be forgiven so we can, in, in fact, approach a holy God, that Jesus, and acknowledge that Jesus takes away our sin, that, Lord, our prayers and our requests and our intercessions and our thanksgiving, they're all going to be heard. Every single word will be heard. But Lord, I pray that we trust that our measurement of effectiveness of prayer is kind of messed up. Lord, that we think we have to see something manifest or something appear in front of us or something very direct. In fact, Lord, uh, we're quite forgetful about our prayers we some i certainly lord pray and forget what i've prayed about maybe weeks ago and yet you've gone and worked in it you've done something and i've not even noticed it because i've not kept track of my prayer relationship with you my time with you to know if that's happened that's changed have you done something what what do i need to do what do i need to learn if nothing has changed in front of me equally whatever all these things lord you answer all these prayers but Lord, I ask for our hearts to be ready to receive the peace in which prayer provides us with. That regardless of the outcome, prayer is effective in giving us peace to trust the one who empowers the prayer in the first place. Lord, thank you uh, that you understand our bitter flesh, our bitter hearts. Our broken hearts, our broken bodies, our broken minds. Thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have someone who mediates on our behalf. Thank you that because of that, we can enter the presence of a holy God and tell you and ask you things. Oh Lord, what a privilege we have. So I pray, Lord, as we come to worship you, just, to f just, just bring your Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and convict our hearts of the, the sin that we may not have admitted to you, that we've given, not given to you, Lord, because it's so easy just to admit something that you already know. We've done something wrong, and we want forgiveness. And in, in that, you will forgive through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. And so for that alone, Lord, we praise your name. Amen.